this episode, Justice League International, number nine, cover dated January 1988. Hello, and welcome to the ninth episode of Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host. But guess what? I brought along a friend. In fact, each episode, I'm going to invite a different guest host to help me tackle an issue of the Justice League International. My co-host today is the man, and I use that term in the loosest possible definition, <coughs> the man responsible for the Action Comics Weekly Podcast, the Ragman Blog, and one of the hosts of the Lantern Cast. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Chad Bokelman. Welcome to the Embassy Chad, thanks for being here. How you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for inviting me. It wasn't so much an invite, was when I got that formal declaration from the Lantern cast that insisted you had to appear on a show with the Millennium. I, I had it reviewed <laughs> by my lawyers. I said, look, you know, little Chad Bokelman sent this my way. Do I have to do this? They talked about the court costs and the fees, and I said, fine, whatever. I'll just do it. That's fine. So, glad you could be here. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but you had to take me in because the Lantern cast is older than any of your shows. So, <laughs> we had kind of homestead rights to the character of Guy Gardner. But didn't you pull kind of like a squatter's thing and just take over somebody else's show? So it's not like you've had it the whole time, right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I, did sort of, I did sort of an act to take over, <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to put it over like that. But uh, no, 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 no. It's good. It's good. You know, and in, in terms of other shows like the Action Comics Weekly podcast, well, you know, if you'd listen to it, that'd be another thing. And hell, if you actually agreed to appear on something, I don't know, covering maybe um, uh, Phantom Lady. Uh, Have that, you produced that, more? More than like two episodes of that yet? Five, thank you very much. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's on hiatus now, but yes, five. <laughs> five. Ooh, man, five episodes and Chad is just worn out. <laughs> <laughs> well, ask Ryan Daly how hard wrangling a bunch of different guest hosts for single issues is. <laughs> I can only imagine the nightmare. I know. I know. Well, I, sh I shouldn't say I know what he went through with Secret Origins. By that, I mean I heard him complain about it nonstop. But I, I do feel for you with what you're doing with Action Comics. Yeah, that's a that is a monumental project, and I'm glad you're doing it because it's a lot of really cool topics, folks. If you haven't checked out the Action Comics Weekly podcast, it is from that run in the '80s, and it does focus on each one of those individual characters. Who, who are we? We're talking about like what? Dead Man, Black Hawks, Wild Dog, uh, Phantom Lady, Superman, Green Lantern, Secret Six. Who am I forgetting? Yeah, Secret Six. You're gonna have I think Etrigan a little while later. Oh, cool. Nightwing and Speedy show up. You know stuff like that. That's awesome. And you do the Ragman blog, which I absolutely love. There's not a lot of Rory fans out there, but uh, man, he's such a cool character. And it's sort of neat. It's almost like you and I found a spiritual middle ground with Ragman. Because for those of you who don't know, Chad is only 13 years old. Um, <laughs> 29. <laughs> sure. If that's what your license <laughs> says, I'm sure. Yeah, you can fake that kind of stuff. Uh, youngest kid in podcasting. We, we go back a long ways from when he was, I think, an amoeba. And we've been basically back and forth and sniping each other. One, And I think this is the first time we've ever recorded one-on-one -on -one together. Which yeah, whose fault is that? <laughs> I well, I'm, as I said, I had. Well, actually, you know, it's probably my fault, considering my really, really crappy performance on that Phantom Stranger episode that Rob <laughs> and I did. <laughs> I do love how you told Rob that you're like the world's biggest Phantom Stranger fan, and then throughout the whole episode, you're like, "No, I haven't read that. No, I haven't read that. No, I haven't read that." Like, uh, you know really? what? I, I will take that heat. I still, <laughs> I still, I still show up and say I'm a huge Phantom Stranger fan, but no, I haven't read everything. 
You know what? I'm a huge Cubs fan because they won the World Series. I've never watched one of their games, but man, I'm a huge Cubs fan. <laughs> well, folks, before we get too much deeper into this mire and muck of uh, Chad and I uh, hating each other, because that's truthfully where all this is coming from, we should take a moment to thank our sponsors. Uh, folks, this episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off. That's right, 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode of this show, uh, we're going to talk about one of the uh, items on the InStockTrades library that usually related to the to the comic we're covering. I'm going to touch real quickly on Tales of the Green Lantern Corps, Volume 3. Now, this collects Green Lantern Corps, issues number 201 through 206. This is in, back in the 80s, shortly after Crisis, when the Green Lantern Corps was go- went from 3,600 people down to, like, seven. And it's like it's like an episode of the real world. They're all living in a funky-looking house, you know, at the coast and getting on each other's nerves. It's a lot of fun. I wish they would do another volume, or at least on InStock Trades, that has the, the Rocket Red issues, because those are my favorite. But anyway, it's written by Steve Englehart, art by Joe Staten and Bruce Patterson and Mark Farmer. Uh, page counts 144 issues. Now, these, uh, these issues take place just uh, maybe about a year before Millennium, so it's sort of in that vein. And it's got Kilowog, our boy Kilowog. So, you know, it features Hal Jordan, Jon Stewart, Aresia, Chip, I love Chip, Kilowog. This collection does feature an appearance by Guy Gardner himself. So normally retails for $19.99. You can get that for 45% off right now in stock trades. It's only $10.99. Now, Chad, all the responsible adults that come on this show bring an in-stock trades recommendation themselves. Did you happen to do that this time? Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. (laughs) You you can sit at the big kids stable chat chair <laughs> that's right i am uh, uh my recommendation is actually going to be red lanterns trade paperback volume four entitled blood brothers from the new 52 era of dc comics for those of you who haven't read red lanterns red lanterns was a series out of the new 52 that for the first several 20 so issues was written by peter milligan and if you listen to lantern cast you know our thoughts on that uh but <laughs> After a while, writer Charles Sewell and then a couple maybe various uh, fill-in writers and plotters and stuff uh, with artist uh, Alessandro Vitti came in and took it over. And Guy Gardner was brought into the fold, and he was made leader of the Red Lantern Corps, actually, which sounds kind of heh, but actually ended up <laughs> being one of the best Lantern titles of the four in the New 52 for basically up until it ended. Conceptually, Guy being, you know, in a force of, of agent of, of anger makes a lot of sense. It does. It does. It's uh, it's full color, 176 pages. Was 16.99, but your price on in stock trades is nine dollars and 34 cents, and you save 45 percent on that man. book. Between the two of those, only about 20 bucks. You get two great comics. That's a steal, man. That's right. So for this and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. We would appreciate it. Now, as we go through this, uh, we're, we are going to be talking about Justice League International number nine today. And if you have comments, if you have thoughts you want to share about the issue or the Millennium crossover that we're going to talk about, that's part of this, folks, or you just want to make fun of Chad, please, on the social medias, be sure to use our hashtag, which is PoundFWPodcasts, or you can tag us with our identities, which is JLI Podcast on Twitter and Justice League International Blah Haha Podcast on Facebook. And we really want to connect with you guys because one of the purposes of this show is to try and build a community of online JLI fans to bring them together so we can all talk about the book and share our love for it because, you know, honestly, this book needs to be celebrated more. 
All right. Now we are on to, as what I always like to say is the most boring part of the show, which is where we let the guests talk for a while. Yawn. But, you know, it's got to be done. So, Chad, I'm going to ask you the same questions I ask everyone because, quite frankly, I wasn't going to write any original ones for you. What is your personal origin story with the JLI, and how did you discover the book, and why did you fall in love with it? Well, I say this on every time every time I first appear on anybody's podcast, so anybody familiar with me knows this story already, but... Uh, and and you know those people are crying themselves to sleep anyway if they're that familiar with you. But. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, when I was a kid, I had a handful of comics. You know, the first appearance of Miss Marvel, uh, the first appearance of Madrid the Mystic in Marvel Chillers number one, the a crossover involving Magnus the Robot Fighter and uh, Nexus, the second issue of that, uh, Union number zero, and a reprint of the first appearance of the X-Men. What, a, what an eclectic collection of comics. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But unfortunately, that was all the comics I really read outside of like Calvin and Hobbes and stuff like that. Fast forward to after high school wandering a borders one day and i pick up a showcase presents volume two of green lantern and i pick up rebirth green lantern rebirth uh started reading both of those devoured rebirth overnight and became a fan fast forward a few more years and i start soaking up everything about green lantern and one of the things i want to know is more about each character so i hear about this thing called jli well unfortunately i hadn't yet gotten in the circles i'm in now in terms of podcasting and other comics fans so that circle at the time had a reputation for JLI as being a very crappy, campy book with zero impact or overall importance. Now, that's not my opinion. That's no, ev- they, that's everything I heard. There was a long period of time where everybody turned on this book. Absolutely true. Yep. Uh, uh, and I asked about it because I was curious about Guy Gardner's role, and I was told that he was an utter jackass to everybody, except when he's nice to Ice, and even then he's an ass. I just, it's oh, not that I, far off. <laughs> I, I just skipped it. Now, the only reason I am appearing on this show is because you started it in the first place. If I, if anybody's going to make me love JLI as much as I hate to give you any sort of credit, Ooh. it's, it's going to be the Fire and Water podcast community is going gonna, is gonna to do it. So I've Aww. got the entire series digitally uh, somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> you know, amidst some sort of folder structure that is impossible to navigate. Right, but anyways, uh, as I have time, I read an issue and then listen to an episode of the show. So as you go, I'll be listening along. Maybe not <laughs> completely caught up with you, but it's going to be my gateway into the JLI series to see if it's worth it. Thus far, I'm only like two or three issues in. I'm not sold on it yet, but that doesn't mean I haven't seen some good moments and seen some potential in the series. It's just as far as my personal things are concerned, uh, this is not yet a book in my where I'm at where I'm like, I'm getting this. If this was coming out today, I'm getting this. But I do see a lot of potential, and based on storylines I obviously know are coming, I think it's, I'll probably end up being sold on it. But um, I'm having a lot of fun with it so far. Wow. It's not as bad as everybody told me when I was quote-unquote younger so well that was years ago when when people had turned on it now they now they praise it everyone everyone loves it now it's there was a there was an era though where this this team book especially shortly after the uh, giffen and dimateus left like starting around 1995 and stuff when graham morrison was coming on the new jla book at that point you know that's when everyone started poo-pooing this book but uh you know it's interesting you were you were the first person we found on the show that isn't like a long-term fan of this book i mean certainly we had frank who just was insane but <laughs> but you're coming new to this you're reading for the first time so this is an interesting perspective to have someone on the show who's not already in love with it so that's exciting um so i'm interested i i almost hung up with you while you were talking uh, <laughs> when you said you hadn't read it but you know i guess i'll give you a chance now, now you said you're only a couple issues in 
the first issues can be a little tough to to find out why people fell in love with it. Kind of the progression of where this normally goes, and people who listen to previous episodes, you know, other than the guest, uh, know this. People love the story, you know, they, they enjoy it, but once they get to certain issues, they hit trigger points. Like, the fifth issue is a huge trigger point. That's where Guy Gardner and Batman duke it out. Or I sh- it's less of a duking out as more of a one punch. Then you get to issue uh, 7, which is where they become the international team, and you get to issue 8, which was the previous issue, which is Moving Day, which is considered one of the funniest comics by most fans of JLI. So uh, I think as you progress past those first few issues, I think you're going to find that you're in love with them by the time you get to number 9, if you read them all in order. Of what you've read so far, who are your favorite JLI characters? Of what I've read so far, it's Dr. Fate and Guy Gardner. Now, Mm. Guy Gardner's on that list just because he's a Green Lantern. I don't necessarily like the characterization of him, but I know enough of him... You know, I have enough quote-unquote future knowledge, I guess, <laughs> uh, that I can kind of just accept where he is at this point in his life and his quite literally mental state is at and can just kind of see past a lot of it. There are times where he's grading, and I don't think anybody would begrudge me that, but I, I can't help but see it grammatically and do it. That's just my, my kryptonite. But now, Dr. Fate, I, I don't have to sell you on Dr. Fate. I know that. <laughs> Uh, I, I really enjoy Dr. Fate. Uh, the, the magical characters uh, in the DC universe are among some of my favorite. you got your Phantom Stranger, your Ragman, your Deadman, so on and so forth. They all top my top five list, but Dr. Fate, I feel like he brings, I don't know, some sort of cosmic ethereal wisdom, some gravitas maybe to the book, I think. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to quite define it, but it's just the, the history, the legacy, the power, uh, the experience of that character sort of brings that to this book, I think. Oh, and I think, I don't know that there's anybody out there who would argue with you. Everyone loves Dr. Fate. They think he's great. He's, he's a bit of a, a game breaker, though. He's so powerful. It's almost like, how do you make an adventure for a character that powerful? But, and, and he's quickly taken off the book. He's not even in the team after issue seven, which is disappointing. So, but he's a great character. Now, Guy Gardner, interesting. Because you've read this issue number nine. Please, t- please tell me you've read issue number nine that we're going to cover today. You did? No, no. I just completely skipped it. You know, I just, why, why prepare for your crappy, dinky little show? <sighs> This should, this should be interesting. Well, in, in the issue, you'll find, as we flip through it, that Guy's acting a little strange. Um, yeah. Are you, do you know the history of that? Do you do you understand why that happened? Anything along those lines? I, I don't. Okay. Guy is – his brain has been addled at this point. He had an altercation with Batman that did not go well for Guy. And then he – as silly as it sounds, he was crawling around under a series of computer banks, got either spooked or bitten by a mouse, and then banged his head on the computer desk uh, from the bottom, and it literally gave him, like, brain damage of sorts. It changed his personality, and he is now going through a phase where he's, like, this ridiculously syrupy, sappy, nice guy. And it, it only lasts for a year. But it's it's a weird, hysterical version of guy that only exists for this short period of time. And it's lots of fun. And they take great advantage of it because everyone knows he's obnoxious. And yet they know he's acting really nice right now. So it's almost like they're placating him like, oh, geez, guy. And uh, so that that is where you're walking into with this story. But you're blaming it on, well, the head smacking under the control panel and the one punch? Because I've read the one punch issue, obviously, but... There's the punch. Okay. And then wakes up in the next issue, which is issue six. And that's when he okay. blows his head. Okay, so it's issue six I haven't read. I've read the one punch issue a a billion times okay so it's the next issue where it all happened okay and guys and then you don't see his personality change till issue seven and then issue eight it's on full display and we see more of it here and it's it's a hoot and and there's a huge huge payoff 
when he finally reverts back to the original guy. And it this it's beautiful. I can't wait till we get there. It's incredible. Well, one of my other favorite characters so far is Blue Beetle, too. Uh, he's quickly growing on me, and based on everything anybody's ever said on a podcast that I've listened to about him, whether it be on your sh- uh, Who's Who show or on Ryan Daly's show or anything like that, uh, the Secret Origin show, I do like Blue Beetle, and the Long story short, these, there's these points you can get at work, uh, for like, in, uh, I sell cars. Don't worry about it, folks. Uh, so <laughs> for like enrolling people in OnStar and stuff like that. Well, at the end of the month, you can spend these points in these, this special little shop so I can search certain things. So I could, I've obviously searched DC comics a billion times <laughs> to see <laughs> what free comics I can get myself. Um, and, and just very recently, like, as we record this within the past, like two or three days, I got in the mail the Showcase Presents Blue Beetle. Oh, uh, that's awesome. So I, I need to uh, sit down and start reading that here pretty soon. But just based on what everybody said about Blue Beetle and what I've seen of him just kind of so far in the JLI series, I'm, I'm already sold on the character enough to at least you know spend some of my points to get this thing. That's awesome. Now, as soon as we get done here with this recording this podcast, and believe me, that time can't get here soon enough, you need to just pick back up JLI where you left off, issue five, I guess it is, and read all the way up through issue eight, and you'll be in love with Guy, you'll be in love with Booster, you'll be in love with Beetle, you will get it. It'll be awesome. Another reason I should mention that I did bring you on the show was because this is a Millennium crossover. Now, the Millennium miniseries, we talked a little bit about it last episode, how uh, it is a very divisive... Well, I I don't know that it is divisive, because pretty much 99% of the world hates the Millennium miniseries. There's only 1% that defend it, and you'll find out more about that in a future episode, folks. But... This issue is part of Millennium Crossover. It's Millennium Week 1. Millennium was an eight-issue miniseries. It came out once a week, and they had tons of tie-ins. Tons and tons. So this issue, for example, takes place immediately after the the big meeting in Millennium 1 where all the heroes are, you know, the, traditionally you have a big crossover, all the heroes get together, and they hang out, and then they go off in their way. And this is right after that meeting. So I just felt like, Chad, you talked about uh, Millennium on the Secret Origins podcast. You're a Green Lantern guy. You just seemed like the right fit for this issue. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes and no. The man, Millennium. Uh, <laughs> We're not going to talk about Millennium itself here, but no, what are no, your no, feelings no. on it, though? Uh, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Millennium's a wordy SOB. Um, <laughs> there are times when that book, the dialogue, becomes nigh unnavigatable, like just trying to figure out. What did that guardian just say? <laughs> like, what does he mean? What is, what is even being said here? I, I, I've heard from several sources that the tie-ins are greater than the sum of the miniseries itself. And of the tie-ins I've read, I would tend to agree, but it's not really saying much. It's such a talky, talky, talky book. And uh, just historically, because you got to remember, I'm coming to this after the fact. I know it doesn't really lead to anything. Right. Well, you know, no, it, 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 no, it led to the New Guardians ongoing it, series. <laughs> exactly, which ends up canceled. And that, uh, God, when was the last time we heard from any of them? <sighs> uh, I'm just saying, like, uh, in the big picture, it, it, Millennium was a flash in the pan, kind of. That's yeah. what I'm. That, that's what I see. So, uh, from from my, you know, accelerated vantage point, I guess. <laughs> Well, I remember even at the time reading it, you know, back in 88, I was all of 16 years old. I could tell after a few issues, like, even I was tired of it. Like, and for me, a lot of it had to do with the art. I love Joe Staten in the 70s. Joe Staten in the 70s can do no wrong. He is amazing. Joe Staten in the late 80s? 
Not my favorite. And then uh, you, you get the art, and then you get, again, the new Guardians, and I was just total snooze fest for me. I, I did not like that series. The tie-ins are great, like you said. Some of them are really, really good. Now, you uh, you told me off-air you have some of the tie-ins, and what was one of the particular ones you said? You have the entire run of a series? What was that? Oh, man, you just got to drag it out of me, don't you? Yeah, I do. I, I got to give you some sort of credit or something for my personal interest in the character. Which character <laughs> is that? Firestorm. <gasps> Is, do you know somebody who does a Firestorm podcast by chance? I don't know. It was kind of off air for a while. <laughs> I, I sort of lost interest. Ouch! So the show, for the record, the show never went off the air. We just we Rob and I had two months apart because of you know the trial and the court case and everything. But and that's not really true at all, folks. That's just an inside joke. But anyway, <laughs> I was very thrilled to hear you have a complete collection of Firestorm. That's awesome. Now speaking of other books, Millennium Tie-ins. Normally, this is the part of the show where we would cover. Monitor Duty, which features other comics on the shelves the same month that features Justice League International members. However, this issue was on sale September 15th, 1987, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that. This is this blows me away. Uh, that is only one week after the previous issue was on the stands. So according to Mike's Amazing World, issue 8 was on the stands, and then the next week, issue 9 was. Because they released two issues within two weeks, everything that we talked about last month already was covered on the Monitor Duty segment, so there's not a lot to deal with. I guess maybe publishing two issues in two weeks was because they wanted to take advantage of the uh, the wildly popular Millennium Crossover. <laughs> now, yeah. are there any titles that came out in that month that you particularly wanted to mention or talk about? Uh, yeah, just a, just I mean, again, nothing nothing really substantial because I was really only five months and nine days old at the time this thing. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> I told you, folks, youngest uh, 13-year-old in podcasting right here. <laughs> uh, okay, first of all, we mentioned Phantom Stranger. The last issue or two, I think just the last issue of this series was uh, – of the, of the four-issue miniseries. That was Mike Mignola hmm. uh, was wrapping up. And then the Wild Dog miniseries was wrapping up too. So just because I do the Action Comics Weekly show, I have to I throw it say, out there that Wild Dog was wrapping up. So you say that like that's important, but okay. <laughs> Sorry, Jay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, shout out to Wild Pod. Exactly right. <laughs> and just relevant to this issue and to Millennium, Secret Origins 22, which was the secret origin of the Manhunters. Yeah. We might be talking about them a little bit later in the show, in fact. Nah, maybe a little bit. Yep. Well, since you just mentioned Wild Pod, which I'm not going to play the promo for, because I played it on one of my shows recently, and I got a bunch of nasty emails saying, don't you ever play that promo again? But you should check out Wild Pod by our buddy Jay Jones. It is a lot of fun talking about Wild Dog, the star of the latest season of Arrow. So, uh, <coughs> And the Action Comics Weekly podcast. Uh, uh, Ragman. <coughs> oh, that's right, Ragman. Ragman's an arrow this year. I forgot. That's right. That's incredible. I just, all of our little favorite Nook characters showing up on TV. Where's my Blue Devil? Where's my Blue Devil? Ah. Haven't, haven't they showed, like, movie posters yeah. or something for him? Yeah. Yeah, the early Flash episodes had, like, Blue Devil the movie and stuff like that. Oh, I, I would kill to see, like, some classic Blue Devil running across the screen. That would be amazing. Are they still doing that uh, Showcase Presents thing? From DC? Yeah, the DC Showcase Presents Blue Devil. I thought they'd solicited that a while back. Oh, oh, okay. I thought you meant, well, when the New 52 launched... They did a book called Showcase Presents, and it was an anthology series, and it did feature some New 52 Blue Devil. I thought that's what No, that, that Blue that. Devil doesn't count. No, no, it does not, sir. The Blue Devil Showcase has been solicited and unsolicited more times than I have fingers for. So I, I don't know what the current status is, but I won't believe it till it's in my hand. And when it is in my hand, folks, unfortunately, that is going to be the only in-stock trades recommendation.
edition you will hear for about six months. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting on my Ragman edition since clearly he's now a uh, breakout hit character. Hey, there you go. And he's, uh, let's see, he's got the original series that went, what, six, seven issues? Uh, Five? Six if you count the, I mean, the, DT, the DC implosion right, happened. Okay. So. And then there's the Rory uh, miniseries. There was two of those, right? Two of them, yep. yep. So then, I don't know. I don't, then there was, there was no ongoing, though, but. That no, he also appeared in he appeared in Batman Family. He appeared in Brave and the Bold mm, once. Okay, and the other stuff doesn't really count because they're just sort of back background appearances during, in uh, Crisis and the uh, Red Tornado miniseries too. So such a great character. But as we were talking about other podcasts, folks, this is a perfect opportunity to take a podcast promo break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about Justice League International number nine. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Everybody, I'm Chad Bokelman. You may know me from the Green Lantern podcast, The Lantern Cast. You also may know me from making promises across the comics podcasting community concerning a new project I've been working on. An Action Comics Weekly podcast, to be precise. Well, it's time to deliver on that promise. The Action Comics Weekly podcast is a bi-weekly podcast featuring myself and a rotating cast of semi-regular co-hosts discussing the characters appearing in the comic series of the same name from the late 1980s. So, starting this summer, join me and Mark Marble as we discuss Green Lantern. For all the people that want to give Hal when he was Parallax a lot of shit about the way he acted... (laughs) Star Sapphire has nothing on Hal for being like pushed over the borderline because she's just completely friggin' nuts. Jay Jones, as we discuss Wild Dog. He straight up, like you said, he, he murders these people. And that's that's not my DC Comics. That's not superheroic at all. Batman wouldn't have killed anybody. But the story this story is it's it's not bad, it's not great. It's it's like the character himself, it's like he's just it's just there. It just exists. Ben Avery, as we discuss The Secret Six. So when I read this alone, as I was reading through this, this issue, I'm thinking, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> I, I told Chad I'd do this, but I don't know if I'm going to like this. <laughs> I, I do end up liking Secret Six more. This is the introduction, and without this, you know, I probably wouldn't like you know, the, the second chapter as much. Doug Zavisha, as we discuss Dead Man. <laughs> well... It's, it's a kind of a waffly dead man story. It wants to be a dead man story. It starts to be a dead man story. It forgets it's a dead man story. And then it comes back to being one. Um, all in the span of eight pages. Alan Middleton as we discuss Blackhawk. That there's sort of this era of Blackhawk where he was sort of dissolute. 
and sort of couldn't get civilian life together. Mm-hmm. And I think this story is either beginning that trend or at least tapping into that, tapping into that fertile story. And Michael Bailey, as we discuss Superman. There is really no way to tie this two-page strip into that. So it really exists in its own world at a time where the Superman books were becoming more and more linked. So it's this oddity on a number of levels. And many other characters featuring many more guest hosts along the way. The Action Comics Weekly Podcast. Coming soon, summer 2016. Find us on Facebook for more details. So, folks, as we're going through this issue, if you want to see some of the panels that we're talking about, and we are going to talk about some of the panels in this comic, head out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Look for episode number nine, gallery post. You'll see a lot of the images we're talking about, and you'll be able to follow along and enjoy the book as well if you can't seem to locate your copy, or maybe you were only five months old when the comic came out. Uh, <laughs> so, folks, we are talking about Justice League International, number nine from DC Comics, cover dated January 1988, cover price of only 75 cents. Could you imagine getting the Millennium crossover, which had, like, I don't know, like 40 crossover titles, and paying less than 40 bucks for the whole thing? That, that uncanny to get every crossover for a cheap amount. And a cover by Kevin McGuire and Al Gordon. Chad, why don't you tell us about the cover? Okay, uh, yeah, the cover features Rocket Red hefting uh, Martian Manhunter over his head, and he's standing atop of a uh, power plant on fire. Uh, as both Guy Gardner and Batman lie defeated at his feet. Mm-hmm. I think it's an odd perspective. It is. It doesn't necessarily make it a bad cover, but I feel like any time I've ever appeared on any of the Fire Network shows, I always have something negative to say about the cover. So I'm just <laughs> like, I'm searching for something to like. But, I mean, Martian Manhunter looks more like a, a color form uh, uh, or some kind of like cl- like he's made of clay. I mean, I, I get it. It's probably like it, it's related to the perspective, I bet, but it just it looks off to me. Interesting. I hadn't noticed that about Martian Manhunter. I kind of see what you mean now. It almost looks like he's hoisting a statue yep. based on the angles. However, I do like the way Batman looks. I love that you see just Guy's feet. The strange perspective for me was the, the water cooling towers that are supposed to be, or the oil refinery towers, I should say. Because of the perspective, they look sort of like geodesic domes when they're actually supposed to be cylinders. Right. Because the perspective is we're down low at the ground looking up, which is actually a pretty cool look. Like I, I actually like Rocket Red number 7 there. I love the perspective of him standing there. I love the fact that he's threatening to throw one of the Justice Leaguers. Like, you know, Marshall Manor's about to get thrown into fire is what we're seeing. And that is his main weakness. Good catch. I really like that setup. But like you, I, it just feels a little tiny bit off. But, you know, maybe that's just the Millennium oozing onto it. Could be what it is. Because <laughs> they did add some of the trade dress logo where they have the horizontal bars and then the circle behind the Justice League logo with the Millennium Week 1 across the top there. Yeah, that's true. I, I can't tell if these little, um, I sometimes call them like wiggle lines or whatever. So okay. kind of insinuate movement help yeah. or hinder this. I don't know. It's weird looking. Those little lines right there, oh, I yeah. can't 
I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I was noticing those too. It's almost like it does sort of stand out by by their edition. Now, my, my, I think my favorite part of the cover is we don't get word balloons on covers very often, and there's certain people out there that hate word balloons on covers, and those people, even though they're entitled to their own opinion, are horribly, horribly wrong because word balloons on covers are super fun. I love this one where he's yelling, no man escapes the, in a special font, Manhunters trademark. <laughs> the trademark just, I couldn't stop laughing when I read that. And I don't know what the trademark's for. I don't know if it's for the font that says Manhunters. I don't know if it's for the term, no man, no man escapes the Manhunters. I don't know. But I think it's hysterical that you put a trademark on the front of your word balloon. That's what cracks me up. I'm one of the ones who like the word balloons on, on the cover. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, some of my favorite covers, like I've got uh, Green Lantern, was it 40 or 45? Let me look. Here. It's right here in front of me. It's uh, Green Lantern 40 uh, from the Silver Age, where Alan Scott teams up with Hal Jordan for the first time. It oh. explains the whole multiverse and all that stuff. It's a big issue. It's got a lot of word balloons on the front, and it's got a big narrative panel on the, on the bottom. <laughs> so it's some of the greatest covers ever done out there, like the Green Lantern Green Arrow uh, 85, Speedy Does Drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, there you go. My ward's a junkie. You know, that's got a word balloon. So I, I can't, I can't argue with you on that. Some of the greatest co- covers of all time have word balloons. You will find that that philosophy of oh, arguing God. with me will carry you far in life, young man. So. <laughs> All right, why don't we get into the issue? Chad, why don't you tell us the first half of the story? Sounds good. All right. Our story, entitled Seeing Red, with plot and breakdowns by Keith Giffen, script by J.M. Dimiteus, penciler Kevin McGuire, inker Al Gordon, letterer Bob Lampin, colorist Gene D'Angelo, and editor Andy Helfer, begins with the JLI rocketing towards Europe and the embassy in Paris. Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, and John Jones are providing escort for the ship while Blue Beetle, Batman, Black Canary, Mr. Miracle, and Rocket Red ride inside. Now, as Guy Gardner makes snide remarks, Booster makes sarcastic ones, and Manhunter just wishes they'd shut up so he could think a a little about the events of Millennium Number 1. Inside, Rocket Red states quite directly that it's time to reveal the truth. He is, in point of fact, a manhunter. <laughs> he asks the team to join him as they are, quote, a most formidable group, unquote. Batman is skeptical, given all they've learned recently about the manhunters. Meanwhile... Over at uh, JLI New York Embassy, Oberon notes the change in course of the JLI ships, subtly hinted at earlier by Blue Beetle and Mr. Miracle before Rocket Red made his announcement, and Captain Adam flies off to investigate. Back on the ship, Bats gives Rocket Red some time to explain his position while Miracle sneaks behind him in an attempt to deactivate him. Rocket Red says the Manhunters simply wish to prevent the Guardians from tampering with the natural order. In short, they wish them to quit meddling via the Green Lantern Corps and such. Bats asks what happens if they refuse, and the obvious answer is their death. Meanwhile, Beetle fogs up one of the ship's outer windows and writes, Help, so the team of... (laughs) so that their team of escorts can see the call for help and come to their aid. The team refuses, and the Manhunter reveals himself, shocking Mr. Miracle and then attacking the team. While they fight, Gardner notices the call for help and promptly thinks it's a joke. As the team inside continues to fight, Beetle notices the ship rocking. Batman deduces that the Manhunter slash Rocket Red can control other technology and is controlling the ship. The escort team then notices the trouble, finally zooming in to try and lend aid as they fly after the ship. 
The Manhunter then exits the ship, jamming the hatch so no one can follow. The ship changes course, and Rocket Red stands atop the ship, confronting the escort team. After Gardner blocks a warning shot, the Manhunter then threatens to blow up his armor if they don't back off, thus killing the team inside. Booster then notices the ship is heading towards an oil refinery, and the escort team backs off, heading to help civilians in the way, but it's too late, as the Manhunter shouts several times, as the ship is falling directly towards the refinery until... <laughs> the ship stops in midair, and no Manhunter can escape the effects of physics as he hurtles <laughs> towards the ground, alone and bereft of a ship full of JLIers. Now, the, the screeching halt of the ship was actually a result of a fleet of Soviet rocket reds coming in to help the Justice League International. And with their assistance, they land their ship safely at the oil field. Now, part of the deal also is they have crossed into Bialian airspace, which is a big deal, because several issues back they were dealing with the Bialians quite a bit. Anyway, Captain Adam arrives a few moments too late to help. Thanks, Cap. And Guy Gardner uses his ring construct to contain the fire caused by the Manhunter crashing into the oil field. Turns out that the Rocket Reds were called in by Oberon, since the Soviet embassy was the closest to their location. And because the League hasn't had enough bad crap happen today, Colonel Roman Harjavati arrives, the tyrant leader of the terrorist nation of Bialya. While shouting about acts of war at the JLI, the Soviet Rocket Reds inform Harjavati that they are responsible for the incursion into Bialya and remind the colonel that the Soviet Union is Bialya's ally. Now, about this time, the metal frame, the skeletal husk of the Manhunter rises up from the ashes of the of the fire, intent on blowing up the oil fields and still blaming the JLI. The Manhunter tries to fire his last missile, but thanks to a Booster Gold's force field, he only destroys himself. And the scene closes with Batman and Martian Manhunter lamenting that the Manhunters could be anywhere. Meanwhile, in New York City, Maximo Lord, who is smoking, by the way, which means he's a bad guy. Anyway, he's uh, he's carrying out a conversation with a mysterious computer-like disembodied voice about JLI membership. He's unhappy as the Manhunters are occupying many of the main superheroic defenders of the DC Universe. We see TV monitors showing several DC superheroes being confronted by Manhunters, including The Flash, Outsiders, Firestorm, Wonder Woman, and Clark Kent. Not Superman, but Clark Kent. Max's secretary, Mrs. Wootenhofer, arrives on the scene. She ignores Max's complaints and proceeds to shoot Maxwell Lord in the chest multiple times. As he's bleeding on the floor, potentially to death, Max's office comes alive and violently dispatches Mrs. Wootenhofer, who uh, appears to be an agent of the Manhunters. And it says, to be continued, but first be sure to pick up the rest of our staggering Millennium miniseries. Woo! Now, that is uh, the finishing the recap of the front story, which was 17 pages. Now we have a backup story, which is only five pages. We'll go through that. It's entitled Brief Encounter. It's got plot and pencils by Keith Giffen, script by G.M.D. Mateus, inks by Al Gordon, letters by Moss, and colorist uh, Gene D'Angelo, editor Andy Helfer. Now, one thing to note here is the front half of the story, the first 17 pages were drawn by Kevin McGuire. These back five pages are drawn by uh, Keith Giffen. So uh, our story opens about 90 minutes before the JLI enter the Bialyan airspace. We find Colonel Ruman Harjavati conspiring with the former Global Guardian, Jack O'Lantern. Now, if you recall, he was a major player in the backup story last month. And Harjavati wants to create a super-powered force to oppose the Justice League International. He claims he's pursuing this because he's tired of seeing the Third World crushed beneath the might of both of their enemies in the United States and Bialya's own allies, the Soviet Union. And uh, the colonel plays upon Jack O'Lantern's feelings about the oppression of the Irish people have experienced at the hands of the British. Jack O'Lantern clearly sees through Harjavati's scheme to simply grab more control and power for himself. However, Jack O'Lantern decides to play along anyway. He sees this as an opportunity to deal a blow to the arrogance of the United States 
United States and the Soviet Union, and Jack knows just who to recruit for this new fighting force. As Jack O'Lantern flies away, we catch up to the earlier story in the same issue as Harjavati witnesses a tremendous explosion over in his oil fields. He rushes to the source of the explosion in the already chronicled meeting with the Justice League International. Woof! So, Chad, as a newbie, as someone that has not read the entire Justice League International series, what did you think of this issue? I actually liked it. I'll say this. For a story that is very clearly tied into an overarching storyline, you know, the whole Manhunter thing is very evident in the story. Aside from that, it's still kind of a one and done. Yeah. I, I mean, I, that's that's the feeling I get for it. They're all, they're on a mission. They're heading somewhere. They get interrupted. They deal with the problem at hand, and then the problem at hand is, for the most part, resolved. Yep. It's a beginning, that's, middle, and end. You're absolutely right. Maybe I'm just reading too many modern comics, but that's, in my experience, <laughs> relatively rare. <laughs> that's very so, true nowadays. So it's always nice to get nice one-and-dones. There's an overarching story, both within the self-contained series itself, as well as Millennium as a whole. But still, the art wasn't bad. I had problems with it here and there, but it wasn't necessarily something consistent where I could say, oh, he always draws so-and-so poorly or anything like that. There's just certain instances where I think things look kind of weird. Like, And maybe I'm crazy because it's a full pl- a splash page, but I, I still ne- don't necessarily like the way Martian Man Hunter is drawn, it, it, uh, even on the very first page. Really? Something, uh, something about him looks weird to me. See, all right. Let's fast forward to page 13, because okay. I was actually going to talk about how much I like the way Martian Manhunter looks. On page 13, the top panel, he is face-to-face, almost nose-to-nose nose with Colonel Harjavati, and I love the way he's drawn Martian Manhunter here. And I lo- Now, he doesn't look like Martian Manhunter does in, say, Graham Morrison's JLA, because they, they really developed that for- the, the, the eyebrow as time went by with Martian Manhunter. This is a time before where Martian Manhunter looked a little more human, but I love the lines that they use. Maybe it's a zipatone. I don't know what, what he used for that effect but I love the shadowing on Marshall Manhunter's face. I love the clean lines. I think it's gorgeous. And I don't necessarily have a problem with the way he looks here and anywhere else. Like I said, my problems aren't consistent. Like I said, he doesn't always draw X character in a bad way every single panel you see that character in. It's just there's that very first page, something about that looks weird. Now, I am in no way, shape, or form an artist, so I can't tell you what looks weird about it to me, but something is hitting me weird about the way that character looks. Maybe it's too much shadowing. Maybe it's not enough of defined lines. I have no idea. Okay. I Personally, I like Martian Manhunter's face because he looks really like he's in deep in thought, which is what he's saying is he needs to ponder this. I um, One of the things, Kevin McGuire is known for a couple different things. One is his facial expressions. He's known for doing amazing facial expressions on characters. You know exactly what a character's thinking. He also is known for doing uh, pulling the acting out of a drawing, meaning drawing a character. And like, here we go, page three, Batman, center panel. Batman's basically telling, um, you know, Rocket Red number seven saying, okay, go ahead and enlighten us. Tell us why we should become Manhunters. And Batman's body language, he's got his arms crossed, his head's cocked to the side. It's basically him saying, go ahead. I don't freaking believe you, but I'm going to let you waste your, waste my time. And you see it in the body language. That, that drawing is acting, you know, and, and I think Kevin McGuire is a master at that. Well, there's a couple of great points too, like when uh, Beetle is blowing on the glass. <laughs> I mean, I, it looks weird, and for a minute you're like, 
is there like a, a, a bubble I'm missing? Like, right. is there supposed to be some sort of inner dialogue there? I don't know. And then you see the next panel, obviously. Yep. Um, I think that looks good. I think there are several points where like when Mr. Miracle's messing around with the backside of the, uh, <laughs> maybe I should rock right. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, when, uh, when he's messing around with, with the rocket red, that he looks really, you know, deep in thought there. Guy Gardner looks cool when he's, when they're on that panel where he's like, That's what I love about these, those guys. They're such a great bunch of jokers. Mm-hmm. Then Guy Gardner looks cool there. I'm not saying that there's uh, problems with the art all the way throughout. I'm just saying that every now and then there's something that looks off to me. Okay. Hey, you're entitled to your own opinion. It's, I mean, it's horribly wrong and misguided, but whatever. <laughs> you're a kid. What do you know? So you're probably still buying Pokemon. So. <laughs> Speaking of art, I do have to award the O-Face Award for this episode. It does go to Black Canary on page two. When the Rocket Red reveals himself to be a Manhunter, the shock look on her face, sort of the uh, beautiful agony of her expression with her uh, making the O-Face. Wait, Chad, what were you thinking, Chad, when I said O-Face? I'm talking about the mouth, the fact that her mouth is in a perfect circle. I don't know what you were thinking of, but that's, that's horrible. <laughs> Get your mind out of the gutter. All right, that's... Moving on, that's awful. You mentioned the help thing with Boo Beetle. That cracks me up. I just think that's hysterical. Uh, I love that when the ship is getting ready to crash, and the, the Justice Leaguers who are inside the ship that are trapped, who, by the way, I don't see why they just blow the windows out to get out, but anyway, they think they're getting ready to crash, and Batman basically says, the other heroes are going where they must, civilian lives are at stake, and Black Canary says, and us? And Batman says, we're expendable. And he, I mean, he's just resigned himself to his fate that it's okay if he dies, because they have to save the civilians. And that's not really a perspective you see in Batman nowadays. With Batman, there's always a way nowadays. But this is more of, I think, the classic Batman that put the citizens before himself. And I really like it. Yeah, um, speaking of uh, the page just opposite of that, just another good art moment right there where uh, the Star Wars references when Mr. Miracle says, I've got a bad feeling about this. Oh my that gosh, was, I didn't even notice was, that. What? Come on. I, I didn't. How funny. I, and I've read this comic many, many times, and I never picked up on that. That is hilarious. I love it. <laughs> it looks it looks great, and speaking of great, the panel underneath it looks good. But yeah, anyways, uh, speaking of jokes, one of my favorite jokes, uh, and, and we'll probably go more into it later, but one of my favorite jokes is when the Manhunter says, we cannot be so easily stopped, and Mr. Miracle says, you can say that again, and the Manhunter does. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's, he's apparently a, a super smart robot. But only so smart. Only so smart. I like later on when after the the, the manhunter goes up in the oil refinery and he comes up out of the rubble. I gotta think that he uh, Kevin McGuire was inspired by the Terminator movie in that one because when he comes up from the rubble, he just looks very much like a Terminator. You know, you can hear the music like you know that Terminator theme as he's rising from the rubble. I dig that quite a bit. I thought that looked good. And he's holding an actual gun. Yep. Yes, he is. I enjoyed it. I think this this end piece that you went over here a minute ago, that that part helps make it less of a one-and-done, I think. Yep, absolutely. Because there's, there's, a, there's a lot in there in terms of, I guess, history is what I'd call it, with within the series that makes you go, wait, wait, what is this? What am <laughs> I? I mean, like, obviously at the end, you, 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 know who, you already know who this character is, and you're, okay, well, this is clearly set before. But in terms of everything they're saying and what's going on, you're like, wait, what have I just been thrown in the middle of? But otherwise, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a really enjoyable issue. And I don't have any particular problems with the writing. I don't have any particular problems with the art in 
terms of you know, there's one whole page who looks that just looks horrible or anything like that. I think it's a really good issue. I'm glad you brought up the backup story. It, it's interesting because we, there was in a backup story last issue too, and we we felt that one was a little jarring because it went from Kevin McGuire art. You know, it was a hysterically funny issue number eight. You go into Keith Giffen's nine panel grid, and it was it was a difficult transition that one. Now this one. Keith didn't stick with the nine-panel grid this time, so it, it it feels a little more natural the way the story flows. And you're right; if you don't know who Jack O'Lantern is, it probably is confusing. But we saw Jack O'Lantern in the last backup story, and I started wondering about this. I was thinking, you know, why would they have a backup story in issue eight, a backup story in issue nine, and a backup story in issue ten? And so I reached out to J.M. DiMatteis and and Kevin McGuire on Twitter, and actually asked. I said, "Do they have any recollections why there's these five-page backups drawn by Keith Giffen?" And Kevin McGuire recalls he thinks it's because issue seven was a double-length book, was 38 pages long, and by having Keith do five pages for the next three issues, that's you know, 15 pages that Kevin didn't have to draw, it gave Kevin the time to catch up from uh, having to do that extra-length book. So it was actually to make up for our, the extra-length book. So, hmm, pretty cool. Makes sense. It gives us extra content, added depth, yep, and it doesn't necessarily make us feel cheated in the yep. long run in terms of story. And when I was reading this for the podcast, I'm reading. I was reading this thing, going, "I this just doesn't seem familiar to me." I was like scratching my head because you know I've read again. I've read this issue a lot because uh, I have the digital version and I had the trade paperback and I, I read it and and I, for some reason I'm like, man, I guess I just glossed over these pages all the times I've read this book and I finally figured it out this week, which is for many, 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 many years, the way I read this issue of Justice League was in a trade paperback I had bought back in 1992, before you were born, I think. It's Justice League International, The Secret Gospel of Maxwell Lord, and it collects issues 8 through 12. And this was, I didn't own the individual issues. I had this trade. I had no reason to buy the issues because I had this collected edition, right? So this is how I would read my issues 8 through 12. Turns out they did not reprint the backup stories in this collection. Which is why when I read these backups, I'm like, these seem entirely new to me. I have no idea where these are coming from. And I'm happy to know 20 years later or 24 years later, now I know why these the backups felt a little off when I was reading them. Do you think they didn't collect them just because of what kind of story they were trying to tell in regards to Maxwell Lord? I mean, I, I get it. This is, this is you know, just the, the secret gospel of Maxwell Lord is just the title for the trade. But maybe what they weren't included because you just couldn't figure out how to exactly publish them. Do you publish them exactly the way they are? Do you collect them at the end? Like, what do you do with them? I think they didn't publish them at the time because, first of all, trade paperbacks were kind of a new thing back then anyway. So uh, the, it wasn't like the machine that's going nowadays with cranking out trades. So they didn't have any set formula. And if you look at these backups, these backups really have nothing to do with the story they're telling right now. This is all set up for issues like 15, 16, 17, that kind of era. And so it, it's almost like these stories are unnecessary for issues 8 through 12. So I could see why they said, you know what, let's cut them. They're, first of all, they're not drawn by Kevin McGuire. They're, they don't build the Maxwell Lord story. Let's just not include them. And maybe they'd include them in a subsequent trade paperback about issues 15 and 16. That, that's my speculation as to why they were not included. Now, the hmm. only Maxwell Lord stuff we really get in this one is where he, we said he's talking to some computerized voice. I did mention he was smoking. Again, big hint that he's a bad guy. And then, uh, interestingly enough, he knows that Clark Kent and Superman are the same person. That's a big deal. Not a lot of people know that. Yeah, that's that's not a question mark either. We're like, well, maybe. Maybe he doesn't know. That's that. It's right there. You see Clark as you see the word balloon from Max that refers to this person on screen as Superman. Dun, dun, dun. So Max is up to some dirty pool, folks. Uh, for those of you who have not read these issues, like little Chad Bokelman, you got to be wondering where this is going. <laughs> and uh, we will find out through uh, 
issue 12 is when it all stands revealed, which is not that far oh, it's, away. Oh, it's, it, it's that early in the series that he's revealed as a, as a bad guy? Well, it, it, he, he was first introduced in issue number four. I mean, they, he was in number one, but they first met him face-to-face in issue number four, and he started working his way into taking control of the league. By issue seven, he creates the, them as the international team, and now he's sort of very involved with the team, whether they want him to or not. He's kind of like the guy who shows up at a party and doesn't leave and suddenly takes charge. Uh, yeah. That's kind of what happened there. And by issue 12, they reveal what got him to this point. And then after issue 12, and I don't think these are any spoilers, after issue 12 begins the next journey of Maxwell Lord. And that's more as a, uh, I don't want to say heroic character, but that's more of a uh, non-evil version of Max after issue 12. Sure. So, And then everything that happens in, in uh, Infinite Crisis, we can just pretend never happened. So. <laughs> It wasn't. It wasn't that bad. I mean, come on, Infinite Crisis and Millennium. Pick one. Max blew a hole through Ted Cord's head, my friend. I, I have yet to read this trade. Whoops, I don't spoilers. Ha- I, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't have yet a deep attachment to Blue Beetle. I am interested in him. Maybe I'll. Maybe I'll be a little more upset about this fact after I read that that uh, showcase presents. But, well, you know uh, what? Don't worry about it because once you're done with it, you just jump forward to these DC Rebirth books that are out right now. Pick up Blue Beetle because Ted Cord's alive and well. It's beautiful. Yeah, the, the Rebirth special had me interested in picking up that title because of what Dr. Fate says about the history of the Scarab. Yep. Not to mention Scott Collins is doing the art. And Keith Giffen's writing it. Good hey, stuff. There you go. That's right. So overall, this issue I think is a lot of fun. There aren't as many like totally gut-busting, laugh-out-loud scenes like there were in issue 8, but there's a lot of great one-liners. There's a lot of great moments. Like There's this one bit with, with Rocket Red who keeps saying, gentlemen, and then Black Canary keeps interceding and going, and lady and she's getting pissed off about it you know and there's some fun bits you know she kicks him in the head as you mentioned with guy gardner being a bit of a doof now you said in the very beginning he made these snide comments at the beginning about the guardians those aren't snide he genuinely at this point in guy's history he genuinely believes that the guardians are cool and super neat because he's in that weird mode where he's been bonked on the head i wrote my recap before you told me that. i understand that there's lots of great one-liners though and it's i think it's a fun issue and i like i love the bit where you know the 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 manhunter has a plan he's going to crash the ship into the oil refinery and the ship just stops and you know as you said yoink and he keeps going and that's hilarious i think this it's got a lot of great bits very masterfully done and the art is gorgeous i i think it's a huge win i think there's there's more there's even more bits like when the 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 rocket red team is screwing with blue beetle (laughs) that's absolutely true that is absolutely true and now you can't I, i looked closely you can't make out the number on the rocket red who's messing with beetle but as we find out in in future issues, this Rocket Red number uh, number seven, who's a bad guy, will get replaced with another Rocket Red whose name is Dimitri. And Dimitri's a jokester, so I gotta think that's probably Dimitri yanking Beetle's leg, which is is very funny stuff. <laughs> I do enjoy the issue. The problem in terms of what people had told me about the JLI series before I started running in the circles I'm in now is they told me it was campy, it was funny, and there there were some genuine actual funny moments, but it was just too much for them and it just made it a bad series. Here, I don't think it's too overdone. The only time I got any in any way annoyed at the book at all was Black Canary towards the beginning, okay. when she kept making everything about sexism. Mm-hmm. That kind of got on my nerves a little bit. 
that is a bit of a trade for her in here, but you got to keep in mind she's on a team of like there's a sausage fest going on in the Justice League at this point. She and I do get that, and I do take that into account, but it didn't stop me from going, oh, seriously. <laughs> Fair enough, and it, and she's not around all that long. Uh, in fact, she'll be out of the book in a few issues because she's relegated to the Green Arrow title at this point, which actually makes a really nice segue. Uh, we should take a few moments to talk about the house ads in this comic. Uh, in we fact, should. There is a house ad for Green Arrow. Uh, this is after Longbow Hunters, so this is the monthly Green Arrow book by Mike Grell, Ed Hannigan, and Dick Giordano. This is a new format series starting in November, suggested for mature readers, and it has Ollie in Seattle because you can see the Space Needle in the back. That's for you, Mike Gillis, and he is bursting in, it looks like a skylight, shooting an arrow through it into a table full of money that these bad guys obviously are because they have guns and they've kidnapped a woman and they're holding a knife to her throat, so clearly they're bad dudes. And on target every month, Green Arrow. What do you think? I think it's cool looking. Uh, the perspective shot's a little off given the size of the guys and the size of Green Arrow, but otherwise I think it's cool looking. I For, for a moment, and I, I, I knew better without you having to tell me, but for a moment I thought it was Longbow Hunters related, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, a quick search you know, negated that for me. Well, it, it kind of is, though, because uh, a year ago or so at this point, or maybe just months ago, there was the Longbow Hunters miniseries, which was three, right. four, three or four issues, and then, which led into this monthly. So, I mean, it's and it's still mostly the same creative team. It's Mike Grell driving force on both. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's still right in that vein. So, good stuff. There is a Millennium Checklist ad. It's like a half page. It's got all the tons of tie-ins that they want you to buy, of course. And then there is a house ad for the Forever People who... If you ever listen to the Who's Who podcast, the Forever People are a particular pain for me. I, they frustrate the crap out of me. Their entries in Who's Who are frustrating. The characters themselves, basically space hippies, they drive me nuts. But this ad looks really good. It's got all the Forever People riding in their super bike or super buggy. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, Ju- Young Justice eventually flies around in this thing, too. Uh, super tricycle. Okay, there we go. And uh, <laughs> it's got them. It's got, you know, Big Bear's driving. it got Beautiful Dreamer and all the different characters there. And in the background, you see them all. But they look different in the background. They look uh, a little more human. And it says, Forever is a Dangerous Place, Forever People by J.M. DeMatteis. Uh, uh, we know that name. Paris Cullens, who drew that showcase that you just got in the mail, by the way. And Carl Kiesel. I mean, this, this is a power team right here, folks. This is a six-issue new format series beginning in November. And with a powerhouse team like that, it... Almost makes me want to give that miniseries a try, no matter how much I despise the Forever People. Just the ad alone, just based on looks, makes me want to give it a try. Yeah. Um, I mean, I obviously I know the creative team and everything, but the way this cover, this this uh, I was gonna say cover, the way this ad looks, it's like, what is this? Uh. <laughs> I, it, like if I if I come across the, the the first issue of this in the back issue bins at my LCS, I'm gonna give this a shot because what is this book? <laughs> this looks ridiculous it does but fun ridiculous it looks absolutely crazy got it super cycle now to be fair i had to google it while chad was just nattering on i was paying attention to him but it's called the super cycle and yes it was featured in the young justice series it's totally awesome i would love to go cruising down the beach in that <laughs> that that big pink bike i'm sure you would heck yeah man uh <laughs> <laughs> I'm man enough to wear pink, aren't you? Then we get a full-page splash ad for Millennium. And here's how much effort went into this ad, folks. They took the cover to Millennium number one and just put it in the middle of the ad. It says, over 30 official crossovers weekly on sale now. Get the whole story. Don't miss it. The DC event of the year. Read it first every week. Steve Englehart, Joe Staten, Ian Gibson. And again, it shows the cover number one with tons of superheroes from the DC Universe, all in a, basically a single color. What do you think of this ad, Chad? I feel they're going a little overboard because 
Okay, first of all, you reprint the cover. Right. Second of all, you have to throw all of these really eye-grabbing colors behind it. You can't just <laughs> you, you can't pick one. You got to do all of them. They're like so subconsciously, your mind's like, well, this is something I need to pay attention to, right? And then they throw, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six blurbs <laughs> about this about this series, and that's not even including the big weekly across the side or the mm-hmm. the creative team in the bottom, just trying to. Tell you all the reasons you should be picking up this book. <laughs> They're trying a little too hard. The way I see this is someone came into the DC art department and said, Hey guys, we just had an idea. We need to run a Millennium ad in this week's comic. Can you throw something together? And it's like five minutes before lunch on Friday. And you know, it's like taco, taco day and the whole staff's going out for tacos. And the art, art guy's like, seriously? Right now? So he had five minutes to throw this together. That's what I see on this, on this ad. <laughs> Isn't this whole book when it's a when it's a crossover tie-in and it's relying on you having read Millennium Number One already? It says it in the beginning of the issue. Yeah, isn't this whole the whole book technically an ad for Millennium? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. That is a very very good point. All right, since we're since we're harping on Millennium, why don't we move on to the next segment? Something I like to call Character Spotlight. And this is part of the show where I ask the guests to share some thoughts on some of the characters from this issue. And it's not really an origin recap. Well, it could be. But it's more about where these characters were in the DC Universe just before their appearance at JLI and what kind of impact they had on the JLI. So what I've asked little Chad Bokelman to cover is the Manhunters. Not necessarily the Millennium Crossover, because we're going to talk more about that next episode of the show. But where were the Manhunters before this and leading up to this story? Kind of what can you tell us about the Manhunters, sir? Well, (laughs) cue my best Jeffrey Rush impersonation billions of years ago a race of immortals harnessed the most powerful force in existence the emerald energy of willpower these immortals the guardians of the universe built a world from where they could watch over all of existence the planet oa they divided the universe into 3600 sectors and a ring powered by the energy of will was sent to every sector of the universe to select a recruit (laughs) <laughs> but before that, these little blue bastards <laughs> it, <laughs> invented a race of automatons, uh, robots, to keep the peace. In the original stories, their story – and by the way, their first appearance was in a Justice League story, which kind of shocked me a long time ago when I first found out about it. But yeah, uh, That is interesting. Uh, in terms of their history. But anyways, so something went wrong. Now, depending on what comics you read, that something could just be programming errors, that something could just be a revolt. But something went wrong, and the Manhunters went rogue. They went up against the Guardians. The Guardians destroyed them and replaced them with the Green Lantern Corps. Several decades passed. The, gar- the Manhunters existed in little pockets. They went out and destroyed and, you know, kind of fought up against various planets and stuff. Now, they have a big history, and that history is actually really well covered already in terms of everybody who's ever had the Manhunter name in one of the episodes of Secret Origins uh, <laughs> that Ryan Daly did, so I won't bother going there because you already have another show on this network to listen to that for, for all of that. In terms of the Manhunters, it's just... Now, they did have, um, what would you call them, Shag? Uh, a waste of time? <laughs> yeah, there's that. But they, they had, I, I guess, agents. A- agents on our world to keep tabs on things around them. Now, if you were to compare this to a modern storyline, well, relatively modern storyline, think, what, scrolls? Okay. It's kind of a secret invasion kind of a thing, isn't it? Now, my question is, did they have these sleeper agents type stuff? Did they have these people before Millennium? Or is it just a Millennium when they introduced that concept? 
up. I want to say it was just in uh, just in Millennium, but I feel like there was maybe one story I I read where it was at least hinted at that they had somebody working for them, but I can't remember if they said it was just like an agent in terms of like it was an, actually a manhunter or it was just an like just a person who happened to be on the side of the manhunters. Okay. That I, that side of it I don't remember. Now, well after Millennium, the history of the manhunters becomes a lot more concrete in the era of like Jeff Johns and stuff, but I don't know how far you want me to go into that. <laughs> wow. Let me guess they become one of they become part of the emotional spectrum, right? No. The the manhunters, they serve under Sinestro and the Sinestro Core War for a while, but the, the in terms of their history and why they malfunctioned in this in the first place, the Manhunters destroyed an entire sector. Oh, that's right. Sector 666. Yes, at the command of Krona. And it was Krona's entire reason for implanting this bug or whatever in the Manhunters programming was just to prove a point to the Guardians that non-emotional beings should not be wielding this power. So for the sake of approving a point, Krona destroyed an entire sector. Okay. Um, so that's 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 kind of where their their history went, and that that took a while because that uh, to reveal in the story because it was one of the Guardians' great secrets. They didn't want it getting out that uh, you know they technically were responsible for the the destruction of a sector. And uh, probably the most important thing I want to respond to that with is uh, willpower is not an emotion. But anyway. <laughs> Come over on the lantern cast and say that you coward. <laughs> uh, unless we're talking about Speedy doing smack, I don't have any business being on a lantern cast. So, <laughs> well, thank you for that history on the Manhunters, folks. And again, we will have a lot more Millennium discussions yeah. next episode. The only reason I didn't go into the Millennium side is because you're going to be getting in, into it later. Plus, yep. all I've said about the Millennium series itself. Uh, there are. There are people out there well, a lot more qualified to talk about Millennium, more just because they're evidently willing to reread it. <laughs> <laughs> I, in, in full disclosure, I am not rereading Millennium just to do these crossovers. Sorry, folks. I, I don't want to do that to myself. <laughs> now, if you want to see a, a sort of decent Manhunter story, I think it's fair to say you should check out the two-part Justice League animated cartoon. Some of the earliest episodes where John Stewart's put on trial by the Manhunters. That's right. That is a That's actually a really good story. Yeah. The Manhunters show up. They make John Stewart culpable in the destruction of a planet. They make him feel like he actually did it. John Stewart goes on trial. This is supposed to cast aspersions on the Guardians of the Universe so that the Guardians of the Universe then show up for said trial, then leaving the planet Oa abandoned so the Manhunters can go to Oa in the central power battery and take it over and regain all the power so that they can regain their rightful place in the universe. And it doesn't go quite so well for them, as you could imagine. Yep. And, you know, that's something that people, a lot of people forget. Those old drawings of the Manhunters, like the old, like showing them in the old, you know, a million years ago or whatever the time frame they were, they were flying around carrying a Green Lantern. Yes, right. They, they they had the Green Lantern power in the old days, so that's uh, that's interesting to know. These days, the power is in, quite literally in their face. <laughs> the, oh, the, the battery is in their yeah. head, and their little faceplate lifts up all Iron Man style, and you can see the the light back there. All right, well, let's move off this unhappy subject onto more happy times, things that make us laugh, because it is time, folks, for the coveted Pwahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and little Chad Bokelman are going to pick a moment, and only one of these will be awarded the Bwahaha Award. 
Chad, what do you got? Uh, I already said mine, but uh, I'm going to say it again. That moment where <laughs> the Manhunter literally repeats himself. Okay. That's, that's the moment for me. I, we cannot so easily be stopped. And Mr. Miracle says, you can say that again. I, we cannot so easily be stopped. <laughs> no, sen- no sense of humor either. <laughs> I was torn. I'll be honest. I, I had a couple of them I played around with. I liked the idea of the ship stopping in midair and the Manhunter go, going flying. I liked the fact that Scott was just messing around with the back of the Manhunter and like the Manhunter seemed oblivious. That was funny. But what I think the nomination for the Blahaha Award should go to is Blue Beetle, who's sitting there flying the ship, realizing that they are in over their heads with the Manhunter and just casually leans forward and goes, to fog up the glass and writes help in the window. I find that hysterical. I think that is absolutely a hoot. So now we got it between that. It's the help or the repeating the phrase. We got to decide who's walking away with the, with the trophy here, Chad. Uh, it's got to be me. I, the, the, and the reason I say that is because what is the likelihood that the fogging of the glass remains even long enough for Guy to see it? It's part of what makes it funny. But looking at your bit, yours is a much more laugh out loud. Mine is more of a just a sort of like that's bizarre kind of thing. Yours is more of a laugh out loud moment. So I think it's fair. Uh, We are going to have to award the Bwahaha Award to the Rocket Red Manhunter for repeating his line. So congratulations, Rocket Red. It is your first and last uh, (laughs) Bwahaha Award, at least Rocket Red number seven, your last Bwahaha Award. Uh, Enjoy your award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you, sir. <laughs> now, Chad, um, hang on. Wait. Something's coming through my phone here. I'm receiving a text. That, what the heck? It, uh, if I'm reading this right, it sounds like Guy Gardner, Kilowog, and Nort are looking for you, and they sound pretty ticked off. Apparently they want to talk to you about some ring maintenance suggestions you made. Did, did you recommend they get their blinker fluid changed in their rings? I, if I were you, I wouldn't wait around to find out. You know, you might want to get out of here for a bit. I will give you a shot when the coast is clear. Uh, Nort, I mean, guy I can deal with, Kilowogs, eh, but I, I really don't want to deal with Nort. All right, I'll, I'll talk to you later. All right. Well, Chad is on the run from several angry Green Lanterns. I'm going to take a few minutes to cover your feedback in a section called... Justice Log. And the first thing we need to talk about is a little bit of news. Keith Giffen recently did an interview with Newsarama talking about his career. In the second installment, he talked about the 1980s, including some tidbits about his time in the Justice League. So just head over to Newsarama, type in Keith Giffen, and you'll come right across it. So, fun interview. Also, we've got the results of our first giveaway. You may recall last episode we announced a contest asking people to tell us why they love Guy Gardner. And the prize was a commission of Guy himself by Jared Albrick, who's a listener of this podcast, but better known as the Yard Sale Artist. Now, Jared has very kindly donated this gorgeous piece of art to the contest, and I'm happy to announce the winner, who was chosen at random, is Mr. Gene Hendricks. Woof! Congratulations, Gene. If you're not familiar with Gene, he does the Hammer Strikes podcast and blog, Legends of the Superheroes, the Quantum Cast, and much more over on the Two True Freaks Network. Now, Gene's entry, I'll read that one to you. He wrote in to say, I have two words for why I love Guy Gardner. Sean Engel. I always thought that guy was an annoyance at best, since I only saw him as guest spots as the nitwit pestering Hal Jordan in the early issues of the 90s Green Lantern series, a.k.a. Volume 3. Then I listened to just one of the guys, and Sean changed my mind. Yeah, guy was still annoying at times, but he was the jerk with a heart of gold. Luckily, I was able to write to Sean and tell him that while the show was still going on. Awesome. Congratulations, Gene. We took all the entries, and I asked Jared to pick a number at random, and he picked Gene's number. So congratulations, Mr. Hendricks, and thanks to the incredible generosity of Jared Albrick. Check him out on Facebook and Twitter as Yard Sale Artist. Now, getting into your feedback, folks, don't forget... 
Over on the social medias, be sure to hit us up. You can use the hashtag poundfwpodcasts, or you can tag us on Twitter at JLI Podcast, or on Facebook, it's Justice League International Blahaha Podcast. And as I said earlier, it really, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And remember, if you're outside the United States, let me know. We'll assign you your appropriate embassy. It's good to know that too, because if you're an international listener, we have to filter iTunes properly to see your reviews. Speaking of which, we have a review from Canada this time out. And I'd remind you guys, folks at home, if you do an iTunes review, which are so critical to helping spread the word about the show, uh, we will read your entire review on the air, starting with our good friend Siskoid from the Canadian Embassy. Siskoid's also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does the First Strike Invasion Podcast, Oh Hot New or Not, Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, and Give Me That Star Trek. Siskoid wrote in his iTunes review, Built like a real show, with various features in addition to the indexing stuff. Shag gave himself a nice challenge with this podcast and is meeting that challenge head on. One of the Justice League's best remembered eras, folks. Discover it or relive it. Oh, well, thank you, Cisco. Very kind of you. Also got an iTunes review from Brian Hughes, who does the Third Degree Burn podcast, which is a podcast dedicated to John Byrne. Brian wrote in his iTunes review, It's been my... <laughs> he wrote, It is being my pleasure to listen to this, which is a, which is a great crack at the Bialian Dictator's speech pattern. So, anyway, Brian went on to write, I have been so looking forward to listening to these. I try to get them as soon as they come out each month. Really enjoy hearing about the origin of Wahaha, though I remember the book so well and knew that event is what started it all. This is really a very enjoyable show, and Shag provides a great snapshot of where the DC Universe was back in the day. Shag is an awesome host with a perfect face for radio. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brian. So kind of you. That's going to wrap up our iTunes reviews, folks, but don't forget, go out to iTunes and please, please leave us a review. It is greatly appreciated. Now I'm going to be pulling comments from our website, things I got via email, stuff on social media. I'm going to be just pulling bits and pieces of it, because folks, there is so much feedback. I put all of this into a Google document, so I can kind of read all the stuff and go through it and highlight what I want to talk about. This thing's over 15 pages this time, so it is just massive. So I'm just going to cherry-pick a lot of the comments you folks said. Thank you so much for all the feedback. You guys are amazing. And these comments are going to be specific to our JLI number 8 coverage, and that was with Patrick Pence. First up is Jeff Nettleton. He wrote, funniest issue of the whole run. Then we heard from Mark Baker Wright, who does Black Rock's Toy Box blog, and his comments about why he loves Guy Gardner. He wrote, Guy's the hero everyone loves to hate. That's his role in the DC Universe. If Guy's not irritating everyone around him, he's just not Guy. The DC world might well be a more peaceful place if there was no Guy Gardner in it, but it would probably be a lot less interesting. I would agree with that, Mark. Then we heard from my little buddy, David Ace Gutierrez, who's the executive producer of the Pod Dylan podcast. He says, man, did I love this comic. It's one of my favorites. And perhaps the best of the Justice League, Justice League America, Justice League International series of books. Great coverage in the issue and reminds me why I love it so much. Thank you, David. Then we heard from Michael Wagner. He wrote about Guy Gardner. He said, love him or hate him, he is very well-realized character. He was the polar opposite of all my social and political views, but it doesn't matter because he's a character that actually makes you feel something. And his relationship with Nort is so spectacular. To me, he is way better than Hal could ever be. He does not give up. I like that, Michael. Good point. Then we're from Rod Pruitt, and he says that uh, about Guy Gardner. He says, I love the Green Lantern Corps. Guy is one of the most fun. You never know the next thing he'll do, but you do know it'll be inappropriate. Then we heard from Chris Franklin, who's from the uh, Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does the Supermates Podcast, the Power Records Podcast, the upcoming Batman Nightcast Podcast, and he's a past guest on this show. He says, I really enjoyed this episode. The camaraderie between you and Patrick came through 
through very loud and clear. It felt like I was eavesdropping on a fun, geeky conversation between two old buds. And I was. Then uh, I made a reference about the Rocket Reds and how much I love their armor. He says that Mattel made an Apocalyptean Rocket Red armor in their Justice League Unlimited line of toys, but he doesn't think anyone has made the classic version yet. Ugh, such a shame. That would be a great figure. Then we heard from Rob Kelly, who's my podcasting life mate over on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does the Film and Water Podcast, the Pod Dylan Podcast, the Treasury Comics Podcast and website, Power Records Podcast and website, Aquaman and Firestorm Podcast, and Who's Who Podcast, and he's more machine than man now, twisted and evil. And Rob wrote, fun show, always nice to hear new voices added to the mix. Ever since I bought this issue off the newsstands, I've been of two minds on the cover. On one hand, it's very funny, well-designed, and beautifully drawn. On the other hand, it is, to me, the beginning of the Justice League International concept tipping too far into silliness, not representing the dignity that should come with any book titled Justice League. But that's just me. <laughs> Rob, fair enough. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I would just say, pull the stick out, Corporal. Up next is Bradley Null. He says... I love this podcast. I love this series it's covering. I love the issue in particular. So yes, I love this episode. This is the issue when I realized how funny the Justice League was going to be. My friend Z and I started identifying with Booster and Beetle, starting with this issue. Then we heard from Brian Hughes again from the Third Degree Burn podcast. He says, What do I love most about Guy Gardner? Is it the way Messrs. Ween, Ostrander, and Burn had Guy dismantle that New Universe super ego guy in Legends? Nah. How about the way Guy was, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, when he sees a Russian he wants to fight? No. Is it how he makes a funny face when Batman hits with one punch? No way. It has to be that Mo haircut. Wise guy. Why are you on a yoink? Then we heard from uh, Clinton Robinson, who does the Coffee and Comics blog and the Armageddon 2001 Revisited blog. Yeah, he really does an Armageddon 2001 blog. Oh, he's a glutton for punishment. Anyway, Clinton wrote in to say, reasons why Guy is the best. He lists everything off kind of bullet points. Taste in hair? Bowl cuts. Taste in personal heroes? General glory. Taste in women? Nobody's hotter than ice. Taste in clothes? Sleeveless jacket and big boots are all the rage. Taste in teams? Green Lantern Corps and JLI? Come on, you don't get any cooler. <laughs> Thank you. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey at the Irish Embassy. It says, greetings from the Irish Embassy, where we are pleased to report that Beetle and Booster have arrived after accidentally going to the Australian Embassy when trying to get to the Canadian Embassy. They have with them a diggery Do, a snow globe of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and a crate of Tim Tams, which they say makes John's Oreos pale by comparison. You know, this is what I love about Jimmy. He commits to the bit. Whenever I've got, like, a goofy thing going, he is all in, and I appreciate that, Jimmy. Thank you. So Jimmy goes in to say, it was interesting hearing Shag and Patrick discuss the introduction of Captain Adam the team. That was my first introduction to the Captain, and in this appearance, he does come across as someone who would fit nicely in with the Booster and Beetle mold as being a more humorous character. It was only later that I learned of a more serious nature of this character through seeing a few issues of his own book and later stories. He goes on to say, The Paris section was hilarious. Beetle's delight at Booster's failed attempt to romance Catherine Colbert was so realistic, you could imagine yourself taking the same pleasure from a friend who embarrassed himself royally as Booster did. The fact that Catherine was the Paris embassy chief made the humor so much better. An instant classic. The second part of the story was intriguing. I had never seen this part of the story before as I'd read it initially through the trade paperback, The Secret Gospel of Maxwell Lord, which cuts this out. And it was only then when I found a copy of the issue in the back as you've been that I read it. The closing of the Global Guardians was a nice subplot and brought in Jack-O-Lantern as a future protagonist down the line. Now for this next part, this is Shag. Bear in mind that Jimmy is in Ireland. Jimmy continues, Patrick mentioned how Irish it was to have the Jack-O-Lantern as the Irish hero. Probably not as bad as when I read Jack-O-Lantern's appearance in the Showcase Presents DC Comics Volume 2 and found that a psychic was a member of the fairy folk. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> 
Thank you, Jimmy. Then we heard from Matthew Thomas Cody. He says, the reason I love Guy Gardner is because he makes any story he's in entertaining. I love the fact that he's a brawler, he doesn't back down from a fight, and he won't quit. His look is distinctive, and I like the dynamic he brings to the team. He may be a jerk, but he's full of surprises, which makes him unpredictable. Under all his machismo, he has the heart of a great hero. Then uh, Matthew goes on to say, I dressed as Guy Gardner for Halloween and won second place in a costume contest, which was a copy of Secret Wars number 8. That's awesome. That's the, if you don't know it, because you, maybe you're a DC fan. Secret Wars number 8 is where Spider-Man got his black costume for the first time. So, very cool. Then we heard from Paul Hicks of the Australian Embassy in the Waiting for Doom podcast, which is about Doom Patrol. He says, This was my first individual issue of JLI, which seems to not be a rare occurrence amongst these listeners. Great episode with a great guest, though he did sound somewhat damaged from long-term direct exposure to Shag. <laughs> well, I, I can't speak for Patrick, but, you know, being around me may have had some sort of effect on him. Heard from DC Dave. He says, I'm only a few minutes into the podcast, but I had to give a shout-out to Patrick for being a geographer. Yes, fellow geographers unite! Very cool. Heard from Leslie Trigg. He wrote in about Guy Gardner. When I was younger and met Guy for the first time in the pages of Crisis, I didn't know who this imposter was. He was nothing like Hal, thus no connection. Then I moved on over to the other company and missed out on the great 90s of the DC. When I returned to DC, Guy was in warrior mode, and thus no connection to the one-time GL. Thus my love for Guy was low, and that's being super nice. Now, as an adult, I gave the Green Lantern Corps another chance with Jeff Johns. In the pages of, wait for it, Blackest Night tie-in, I fell in love with Guy because of his passion and rage for his fellow Lanterns, especially Carl. I moved from disconnection to respect for Guy then. As of late, I've been going back and rediscovering all the goodness I missed at DC in the late 80s. In the pages of JLI, I found myself not respecting Guy, but loving to hate him in the early days and was thrilled with the one punch. But I love how he had his change of attitudes. I loved how it was played. As I learned more about who Guy is, the more I respect him. So to say I love Guy, it's more like I respect the guy with the green ring. He's his own man, and his look's grown on me over the years. Heard from our buddy Martin Gray at the Scottish Embassy, who does the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. And he says, Guy is great because he had a rocky road as a hero, yet perseveres. And while he tends to be obnoxious, he has a better side, and being around his friends inevitably brings it out. Plus, best costume ever! Then heard from Tim Price. Uh, he starts off with moving day to quote Guy. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> he says, I know JLI number seven is supposed to be when everything changes, but no, it was number eight. In this one issue, JLI transforms from being a superhero comic to a character-driven comedy which happens to have superheroes. This was the turning point, and JLI would never be the same after this. And I loved every moment of it. Oreos, ha, blue and gold, this was it. And then uh, at the end, he goes, now, if you excuse me, there's some blue dwarf and tall Roman woman floating above my lawn, and I just finished planting the millennials. <laughs> nice. Heard my buddy Jared West. He says, this was the first issue I ever read, and I loved it. Then he had approached me with an interesting question. He says, by the way, Shag, after much careful consideration, I've come to the conclusion that Batman reached his apex of cool in those first few issues of JLI. It was a slow downgrade with a lot of excellent stories along the way, but even the greatness of No Man's Land doesn't match up with the priceless combination of the one-punch and the Star Trek jokes made by Batman. Well, Jared, I thought about that, and I kind of agree. As far as in the Justice League story, I do think Batman may have peaked in the early issues. And as we do our read-through, I may find that that's not true. But So he and I talked about that on Facebook a little bit. But then I said, but if you if you look at it from the Dark Knight detective perspective, personally, you can't beat Batman Year One. That's my favorite. Then we heard from Lauren Studley, and she made a comment uh, when we posted the Guy Gardner commission done by Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist. She said, freaking love that guy. Now, I'm assuming she means Guy Gardner, but I suppose she could have been talking about the yard sale artist. I don't know. 
know. Then we heard from John Moray or Moret. I'm sorry, John. I'm slaughtering your last name. Anyway, uh, he shared with me a Fred Hembeck commission, which is uh, it's one of those blank comic covers, you know, you can get in the store and then you get your creator to draw something on there. Someone got Hembeck to draw the JSA, but it was in the classic JLI number one pose. So Dr. Midnight is standing in for Guy Gardner, and John suggested that Guy Gardner uh, stand in should have been Wildcat, which I tend to agree with, uh, or maybe even the Golden Age Adam would have worked as well. Both of them had a nice attitude. Then uh, received several messages from my buddy Michael Bailey from uh, Views from the Long Box, from Crisis to Crisis, the Superman homepage, and a previous guest on this show. He's been listening through past episodes, and uh, <laughs> on issue six, he wrote, I will not let Shag bait me. I will not let Shag bait me. I will not let Shag bait me. And he just repeated that over and over and over, because I uh, yeah, I was taunting him in that episode. Then in issue number seven, he responded saying, listening to Shag and Doug Zoisha discuss JLI number seven, at one point, Doug mentions that Kev McGuire Superman might have been the closest we ever got to seeing Christopher Reeve Superman in comics. And then he said he wonders if Doug had ever seen Gary Frank's version. And Doug wrote in saying, oh yeah, he had seen Gary Frank's version, but he prefers McGuire's. Then heard from Mark Lax. He goes, the first bwahaha. This issue will live in infamy. Jean and his Oreos fixation, Captain Adam's oops moment, the beginning of the blue and gold, long-running bromance, and so on and so forth has cemented this issue in JLI history. And yes, I'll act like a stereotypical man and say that McGuire draws some sexy women, yo. <laughs> this comic and this podcast is all kinds of awesome, and Shag is a national treasure. Okay, maybe not that last part, but everything else is awesome. <laughs> thanks, Mark. I was kind of feeling pretty good about myself for a minute there, but thanks for bringing me down. Then I heard from my buddy Jose Rivera. He says, I've always enjoyed the moving day issue because I feel this is the issue where the booster and beetle dynamic we've all come to know and love begins. And he goes, on a personal note, I also enjoyed this episode as I listened to it as I moved into my very first apartment. That's awesome. Jose got to listen to moving day on his moving day. JLI Comics has been a part of my life for a very long time and that the episode about one of my favorite issues coincided with a big moment in my life was just one of the coolest things ever. I'm really glad that worked out for you, Jose. Then we heard from Grant Richter from the Unearthly Visions blog, which is dedicated to the Avenger Vision. He says, I have to admit, I'd never been much of a DC guy. I was always struggling to keep up with Secret Wars or Ohatmu or the Spinner Racks back in the day. My best friend at the time, though, was a big DC fan, and he was that kid who could actually convince his mom to drive him an hour to the nearest column book store. So I kept up with DC vicariously through his collection. I never really got the humor on JLI, or maybe I got the jokes but never really thought they were that funny. I was 12 when JLI number one came out. Your appreciation and passion for the title has me taking a second look, and looking back through the filter of age and experience, I'm starting to see why this run is so well loved. Very cool. Glad to hear it, Grant. Then we heard from my buddy Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade podcast. He posted up on Twitter that he had gone to Half Price Books and he had just picked up the trade paperback for JLI uh, volume number two trade paperback and volume number three trade paperback. And he got a few of the Justice League 3000 issues. Awesome. All great finds. Then, check this out. On Black Friday, he went shopping and he bought, if I added this up right, something like a hundred Justice League comics, all from like the JLI era and then after Giffen and DiMatteis and you know all the way through Justice League International, Justice League Europe, Justice League America, all that stuff. He, for about 20 bucks, he got like 100 of these comics. Unbelievable, man. Pat, I'm going shopping with you next time. And Justin Steiner wrote in to say he wished Comicsology had the 1987 Justice League Annual Number 1, so he could reread it before listening to the podcast. You know what? I was stunned, Justin. I didn't realize that those annuals aren't out there. I mean, the only way you can get them digitally is part of the collections, which, by the way, are fairly reasonably priced, which isn't a bad way to go. But yeah, I was stunned to see they don't have the individual issues. Then our buddy John M. Wilson, uh, he's been posting images from issue number 8 up on his Twitter and uh, doing his own reread in preparation for listening to the podcast. Thank you for that, John. He says he's starting a Swamp Thing read-through as part of a larger DC Bronze Age reading project. He said Justice League International might not understand, but it's his fault. 
meaning it's my fault. <laughs> I wonder what I did to encourage him to do a Swamp Thing read through. Huh. Maybe he'll tell me someday. Her buddy Michael O'Brien, he says, uh, Dear sir, don't dare speak ill of Millennium. He loved it. Marvel even ripped it off for the secret invasion. Well, Michael, um, then you might not like this episode all that much. Terribly sorry. <laughs> then we heard from Dallas Gibson, who over on Twitter reminded me of story in the JLA 80-page giant number one from 1996, so years after the Blaha era. It was a story featuring Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, and it was done by the Blahaha creators, and it follows up on the mouse, the scared guy gardener, leading to his head injury in issue number seven. I appreciate that reminder, and I made sure to add it to my list of comics that we will eventually cover on this podcast. Then I heard from my buddy Mike Gillis, who does Radio vs. the Martians, podcast Ella Vista Baby, Hex and Violence. He wrote in to remind me and ask me if I had seen uh, some comic book covers, which I had forgotten about. If any of you ever watched the TV show Fringe, you already know that there was this parallel universe storyline they were dealing with. And in that parallel universe, they had comic books. And the guys on Fringe worked with the folks at DC Comics, and they produced a bunch of fake comic book covers, uh, spoofing existing covers for this parallel world. And one of them was a Justice League number one cover. You know that famous pose, Justice League number one. And uh, they had replaced Guy Gardner, though, with Jonah Hex. So that was awesome. I had completely forgotten about that. And that's just another one of those awesome homages to the Justice League. Uh, I keep trying to call it Justice League International number one. I realize it's Justice League number one, but you know what I mean. So that's that's awesome. Also wanted to say thanks to a few folks that gave us some really nice comments. Jeff Poyer, Dale Dale, Kichi Baker, and Aaron Head Moss. Thanks, guys. Now I want to take a moment to thank everyone who shared our show on their social media timelines over on Facebook and Twitter. Now, folks, I realize this is a long list of names. I say it every month. However, I really mean it. These folks show their support and help promote the show, so it's really important to me that we recognize these individuals. Our community is growing, as I say every time, and this time out, we're looking at over 60 names to strap in and help me say thank you to dr ange between the pages boosterific.com brad dade brett booth so yeah seriously i looked this up i checked it out yeah this is brett booth the comic book artist he retweeted one of our tweets about the podcast thanks brett hope you're listening Brian Hughes, Brian W., Callum Nauer, Cash Flag, Chris Lewis, Christopher Warden, Closeout Comics, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Dallas Gibson, Daniel Thomas Andrew Daly, David Ace Gutierrez, David Morgan, DC Comic Fans, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Frederico Hernandez, Geek Brain Popcast, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Heath Killjoy, Jack Dower, Jared West, Jared Albrick, Jason Unmasked, Jeff Poyer, Jeremy Parker, Jonathan Wilson, Jonathan Brown, Keith G. Baker, Con L, Cord Industries, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Laurel Phillips, Longbox Crusade, Luke Dobb, Mark's Mess Podcast, Martin Gray, Mike Peacock, Noah Tipton, Patrick Pence, Paul Hicks, Rod Pruitt, Rolled Spine Podcast, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Stella from Batgirl to Oracle, The 108th Sage, The Aquaman Shrine, The Hammer Strikes, Tim Price, Timothy Wint, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Warlord Worlds Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Woof! My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is awesome. You guys, seriously, you are the best. Now, if I've forgotten anyone, I am terribly sorry. It's probably Patrick's fault, but just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. So, folks, please keep those cards and letters coming. You can go out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. There you'll find all the posts for the show. You can leave comments on those posts. 
Over on Facebook, look for Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. On Twitter, it's JLI Podcast. Or you can send us an email, jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Patrick Pence for helping me cover Justice League International number 8. Such a great collection of feedback from that episode, guys. Now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, hopefully, Chad will have escaped the collective wrath of the Green Lantern Corps. To tell you the story of Green Lantern is to tell you the story of the birth of a universe. The origins of DC as a whole. It's a magic emerald meteor from space in the 1940s. It's the establishment of the JSA. It's the birth of the Silver Age. It's the introduction of a universal police force. It's the formation of the JLA. It's the emergence of the multiverse. It's a crisis in both space and time. It's an emerald dawn. And it's an emerald twilight. It's the brightest day. And the blackest night. And the Lantern cast covers all of this and everything in between. We're Green Lantern's greatest advocates and fiercest critics. We've been fans for years, and it's the reason we're self-proclaimed Lanternologists. So find us on iTunes and Stitcher and give us a listen. Because the history of Green Lantern really is the history of the DC Universe. And we've got the interviews, commentaries, reviews, and more to back it up. Batman Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, hosted by Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin. Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Highlights from this legendary era include Batman number 400, Legends, Mike Barr and Alan Davis, Batman Year One, Batman Year Two, Max Allen Collins, Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd, Ugh. Millennium? You're not doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family. Batman Year 3. A Lonely Place of Dying. Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman? The Rise of Tim Drake. Legends of the Dark Knight. And that's just up until 1989. Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that? You'll have to tune in to find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, when Batman fires Dick Grayson. You want to find another co-host? And we're back, folks, from break. And, yep, it does appear that Chad is back. And, uh, Chad, did you get away? Yeah, Nort got distracted by a bone. Ah, perfect. Excellent. Just like I planned it. All right, folks, my thanks to Chad for appearing on this episode of the show. I really appreciate it. Now, little Chad Bulkman, why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the internets? Uh, first and foremost, I co-host a podcast all about Green Lantern that's been on the air for eight years. I don't necessarily – I haven't been in charge of it that long. <laughs> but I, I co-host it alongside my buddy Mark Marble, and we've been doing it for – Three years now, I think. Just us in charge of it. Um, we've got not just issue reviews, but we've got co- commentary tracks. We've got uh, we go off the deep end every now and then and discuss things not Green Lantern related because let's face it, sometimes you got to just take a break. And interviewed several creators, including like Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, and Ron Mars and stuff like that. But it's long running. That's at LanternCast.com. It's on iTunes and Stitcher as well. I also do the Action Comics Weekly podcast, which is a relatively new podcast. It's a 
what I call it? What's what? Do I, what's my words? I um, a use, bi- your, use, your, use your words, Chad. <laughs> I know words. I have the best words. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bi-weekly podcast featuring a rotating cast of semi-regular co-hosts from across the comics podcasting, blogging, and fan community. Uh, and we talk about the uh, Action Comics Weekly series published by DC in the late 1980s, uh, one issue per episode, and I have a different host on for each segment, for each character. Right now, we're in the Green Lantern, Superman, Dead Man, Secret Six, Black Hawks era of the comic coming up soon on the Black Canary stuff. And right now, the show, though, is on hiatus. That's just so I can build up my backlog, kind of flush out some kinks in the show and so on and so forth. The show will be back on in January. But in the meantime, each episode is about three hours long. So... You have plenty of time to catch up, and don't let that deter you. I've had a lot of people complain about the, not really complain, but just, you know, sarcastically comment about the length of the uh, episode, but episodes, but still love the show. You know, we, we give these things their due diligence for reasons. Just listen in. Folks, trim silence and times two speed playback are your friends. <laughs> True. Uh, Shag hasn't listened to a single episode and refuses to come on the show. So, uh, you know, there's that. <laughs> That's one version of that tale. Not exactly <laughs> a complete version, but that is certainly one version of it. Phantom Lady is right up your alley. I don't know why you won't do it. <laughs> it's, that, there, that is such a loaded question, and the way you worded it is just too dangerous for me to even touch. So, and the, uh, the, the, the one other thing I'll mention is I do do the Souls blog, which right now I'm just covering kind of what they're revealing in the Arrow TV series about the character of Ragman in relation to how it ties in or doesn't tie in with the what we know about Ragman from the comics. I do plan on getting back to the regular type of posts where I review the older series and Basically, the entire point of the Ragman blog was to kind of be like uh, an indexing blog, like uh, Rob does or did his Phantom Stranger blog, you know, just cover every appearance kind of relatively in order. So that is coming soon. But hey, you know, Pat Broderick, when I met him at a con uh, not too long ago, was like, oh, you're the one who does that blog? I read that all the time. And I was like, dude, I was floored. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) I was like, Pat Broderick reads my blog? What? (laughs) So that that alone has like been playing in the back of my mind, trying to get me to get back to it. So it'll be coming soon. But at the very least, you can check out how Ragman is doing in the new season of Arrow. That's thesuitofsouls.blogspot.com. I'm really glad you didn't put Tattermalian, or however you pronounce it, in the, because I never would have been able to type that into the URL, so I'm really glad. Tattermalian. And I'm really glad you, I'm I'm really glad you didn't put nuclear anywhere in your URL, but it doesn't matter because you don't use that site anymore. What? I can, I can spell it, I just can't say it. (laughs) Anyway, Chad, again, thank you so much for being on this episode. I knew if I was going to talk about boring manhunters, I, there was, you were the absolute best choice for the job. For the boring part or the manhunter part? Right. Okay, thanks. Uh, folks, come back next month when we cover Justice League International number 10, another Millennium tie-in. However, this time, our guest plans to defend the Millennium crossover. That's right, so be sure to stop by and check that out. I imagine it'll be a little like driving by a car accident really slowly, anticipating that you'll see something that will haunt your nightmares forever. Anyway, who will this guest host be? Sorry, you're going to have to wonder for the next month. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Chad. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make make something something of of it? it?